Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day to celebrate that you sent your son Jesus into the world to take on our flesh, become like us, and yet to redeem us. So this morning, as we look at the time in which Jesus has come, may we be filled with courage that your plans and your purposes are perfect. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Merry Christmas to everybody. In our days, uh, we are quick to start celebrating Christmas. I think I mentioned yesterday at the service about Halloween now. Um, we see Christmas decorations in Walmart the day after Halloween, and we start playing Christmas music shortly after that. And then by December 26th, we're ready to bag that stuff all up and move on. And I think, unfortunately, what we miss is the great power of contemplating and looking at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so often our focus becomes family and travel and gifts and all those wonderful attributes of this time of holidays, and yet I think we miss what sustains us through this Christmas season, which is considering that God became flesh and dwelt among us. So this morning, I want us to look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, 4 and 5, which we heard read by Lucinda filling in, so thank you, Lucinda, for spotting us this morning. And also considering how God is at work in your life in these times and these days. So do you ever wonder why, you're, why you are alive at this time in history? Why is it you are here and now in this place, in this time? Is history a series of accidents or is it a series of precedents? Why are you here today? And I really believe looking backwards, that God has actually acted in history. Is this story of a baby Jesus really true? Can I trust these things with my whole life? This is why Galatians 4 starts off boldly and says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, also implied daughters. So listen to this great passage again, that there was something very powerful and unique in which the time that Jesus came. And he came, born of a woman, taking on flesh, born under the very law that God had given his people to redeem those of us under the law. and so that not only are we redeemed, but we might be incorporated into the family of God. We might know what it means to be brothers and sisters of God and with each other for eternity. It's a very provocative uh, set of scriptures. And we're guilty often of chronological amnesia, which means we've forgotten the scope of humanity and we live a very short-sighted life. We're very focused on the day-to-day. -day. We think 100 years ago was so long ago, 
Um, when we travel with our kids, they say, how long is it going to take? We're just, we are instantaneously oriented. And perhaps Christmas, maybe in this full scope of humanity, just happened a minute ago. It's not that long ago, people say our human relatives have been around for several hundred thousand years. Allegedly, the earth has had life for three and a half billion years and itself has been around for 4.6 billion. And in the universe, in all of creation, theoretically, scientists and astronomers and astrologers, is that right? Did I say one of those wrong? Not astrologers, sorry. Astronomers say that the, the universe is nearly 14 billion years old. And so we think something that happened 2,000 years ago was a really long time ago. In the history of creation, it was a minute ago. But the scriptures tell us something about what happened 2,000 years ago, that it was the perfect time. It was the perfect time in all of creation, in all of human history, for Jesus to come and enter. I handed out a picture yesterday, this picture of Eve and Mary. Perhaps you've seen it. It's floating around. It's pretty popular. It's only about 18 years old. But it summarizes the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Mary, all the way to Luke chapter 2. And it's all about a birth but a particular birth. Science also estimates there have been 108 billion people who've lived in human history. There's about seven and a half billion alive today. They also tell us that nearly 400,000 people are born every day in the world. That's about the size of Greensboro being produced every day. And yet, all our hopes and our faith center around one particular birth, a baby in Bethlehem, in a manger to a human family, a poor family with a mom named Mary and a dad named Joe. Much of human history then, friends, was almost entirely in darkness before this time. Each civilization that existed was ruled by leaders who held total power, often by divine right, who did whatever they wanted with their subjects. There was one exceptional civilization that lasted a sliver amount of time, and that was Persia. The Persians actually believed the, their laws were above their king. But for most of human history, the kings ruled with absolute authority and sometimes tyranny. People in the ancient world were miserable. The ancient world is a picture of what the world is like without Christ. And it shows us the desperate need of mankind for redemption. Yet in Jesus's time, you had the coming together of these three great, we'll call them supercultures, these three great influences, Israel, Greece, and Rome, all coming together so that when Jesus Christ was born, in Bethlehem, Paul says he came in the fullness of time, the perfect time, the best time in human history. There was not a better time, nor would there be a better time for the birth of the Messiah. So I want to look briefly. It's a history lesson. It's two days after Christmas Eve. 
Your minds are still consumed with turkey and trees, but I want you to dive in and hold on and listen to these three great influences so as to understand the beauty of the incarnation. First, the Jewish culture. What the nation of Israel contributed to culturally in the world was this singular devout belief in the promises of God, that God, Jehovah, would make them his people. It's what they talked about. It's what they celebrated. It's what they thought about and wrote about all the time, that God had made promises to them and that he would keep his promises. And the Jewish nation was also set apart from all other nations. It originated with this man, Abram, this promise made to him that through Abraham, through his lineage, that it would be a blessing to all the nations. So God called Abraham and his people to be separate from the nations around them, all the cultures around them. While most of them worshiped many gods, the Jewish culture worshiped the one true God. That's what made them distinct in ancient history. And they not only worshiped the one, but they were governed not by laws of man, but by God's laws. They believed that God had spoken to them and revealed to them how they were to be. This is their great contribution. And that their king was their God. And in any sense, the laws of God and his commands affected all of Israel economically, socially, morally, and spiritually. Where the religions of the ancient world focused on trying to please God and to get to God, Israel knew it is God who comes near to us by faith. This is why Abram's, uh, his acknowledgement and his trust and obedience set in motion the idea of the gospel that the righteous become righteous by faith, not by what they do or their status or who they own, but who they believe in. Another essential role that the Jewish, cult, Jewish culture played was in the preparation for the coming of Christ was in the sacrifices. Here's this law. You're supposed to be obedient to it. If you break the law, the sacrifices were designed to put you back right to God temporarily. So these, all these systems of sacrifices were in place, so much so that we heard read in Galatians earlier. The law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Other translations say the, the law was our tutor, It works this way. I've had two of my five children get driver's licenses. It's a scary time. And the thing about the state of North Carolina, unlike where I grew up in the state of Oklahoma, is you have this thing called the nines. And the nines is this temporary period when you get your license and you can only drive between 5 a.m. and 9 p.m. And if you're going to drive before or after 9 p.m., before 5 a.m., you have to have an adult driver of 18 in the car with you. Why is that? Because what good comes after 9 p.m. to 5 a.m., right? Insurance companies are really smart people. They've figured this out. So there's this 
temporary nature to your license. And then after a certain point of time, 60 hours of driving, you haven't received any tickets, you haven't been caught using your mobile phone, no wrecks, then you can take off your nines and you can be out and cause mayhem and chaos, right? So the law acts as that tutor for us. It helps us know what God thinks and how we are to be. This is the great contribution of Israel. And the law has four parts to it. It has the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. Thou shalt not dot, dot, dot. Those ten amazing sentences, we read them every Sunday during Advent. It also has the ceremonial law, what you are to do if you break one of those Ten Commandments, how you're supposed to make amends with God temporarily. It has the health laws. We think our, our idea of cleanliness and germs is relatively new due to modern science. Not at all. Just read Leviticus. It also has civil laws, how you have a just and proper society. This is the great contribution of Israel and the Jewish faith. The sacrifices towards these laws commanded the Jews to offer day after day these sacrifices to amend themselves with God, to make themselves right with God. Hebrews 10 says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it, the law, can never, by the same sacrifices repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. There are still even more ways that God used the Jewish people to prepare the way for Christ. We know from history, the Jewish nation was dominated by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Egyptians, by the Persians, by the Greeks, and lastly, by the Romans. The Jews were chosen by God as the keepers of the true faith, and they laid the foundation for our faith today. The more they were dominated, the more they spread. By Jesus' time, there were Jewish synagogues, a precursor to the local church, all over the known world. They had been scattered and spread everywhere. God even used a Roman general named Pompey to start a Jewish colony of Jewish captives in Rome that became the roots for the Jewish church. This was important because it was through the synagogues that the gospel began to be preached. The Jewish people had this one massive attribute to their life. They expected God to bring a Savior. They expected God to act and to deliver them. The second history lesson is the Greek culture. I remember in high school, I said, it's all Greek to me. When I encountered something I didn't understand, I still feel that way about the Greek philosophers. The Greek philosophers, Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, all these fancy names that no one, no one really knows what they thought, but we like to talk about it at parties to show off. But here, these, this great Greek culture, which was fast-forwarded by Alexander, in 336 BC, he conquered most of the known world again. And he laid in this world this culture of Greek thinking. 
so much so that it traveled over the known world. People began to read and think in these Hellenistic terms, this Greek manner. And often the, the great philosophies, the great philosophers of Greek thinking were people who Paul actually said, this is the wisdom of the world, but the gospel is different. So on one hand, the Christian church utilized Greek thinking to say, this is how the world thinks it should be. But I tell you a different story. This is why Paul says in one place, the, the Jews demand signs, the miracles, and the Greeks want wisdom. But the gospel is foolishness to those who desire wisdom. Because wisdom only uses reason. It only uses what we see and know and can think about. The gospel comes in and speaks very differently to that. On the other hand, it's also true that the Greek way of thinking was born into this time period that provided the early church with a set of discussion tools, a way to reason as well, a way to use something like logic. Logic works this way. If that person, Jesus, wasn't truly and really the Son of God born in a manger, this, friends, is a waste of your time. This is a construct. It's sentimental. These songs give us a good feeling, but it's not true. It's not real. That's the gift of logic. If Jesus wasn't truly born as a baby and raised and died on a cross and resurrected on the third day, what you are practicing is silly. Spare yourself the time and money and the work. Stay at home, read your newspaper, play golf, drink coffee, do something else. If this isn't true, you have bought into the biggest hoax of all time. But if it is true, it's worth laying your life down, like God reminded us about Stephen. That's the gift of Greek thinking. The Apostle Paul was well acquainted with Greek philosophy, and he often quoted Greek writers as he spread the gospel. In Acts chapter 17, he says that in him, we live and move and have our being. That's a direct quote of a Greek philosopher. New, New Testament writers also referenced Greek philosophy. We heard it this morning when Ryan read the gospel. The word became flesh. The word in Greek, logos, this complicated, deep word, this comes from Greek thinking. And we see that John uses this word to attach personality and reality to the person of Jesus Christ. This shows how the prevalence of these Greek philosophical methods were influencing how Christians presented their faith. Greek philosophy and re religion were also important because it showed the world the emptiness of a worldview without God. Greek thinkers often ask this hard question, what is the purpose of life? What is this all really about? By the time of Christ's coming, many Greeks and many Romans were dissatisfied 
with their philosophies. They were hungry for something. I think we see in North America today uh, a large growth of unchurched people. They say that the greatest and the fastest growing religion in North America is the nun, which means if you are checking a box and you're saying what you believe, am I Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant or Pentecostal or Jewish, you name it, uh, Muslim, the largest and the fastest growing box checked in North America is none. I'm none of those things. But I think even though that's the box being checked, people are really hungry for something more in their life. They're really hoping and praying there is something more at work in my life than just getting a good job and living a good life. This is the essence of what the Greek philosophers taught us. There has to be something behind all this. They were ready to receive this gospel message. Lastly, for your uh, Christmas day after Christmas uh, history lesson, Roman culture. Rome had conquered most of the world, and they had done it through oppression. The Roman destiny was told through one of their greatest generals, Tacitus, and he said that Rome exists to own the whole world. That's their focus. That's their desire to conquer and subjugate everyone. The Romans were precise, they were organized, and they were cruel. Their sense of justice was swift. The symbol of Roman dominion, the symbol of Roman power in the world was a cross. Their cross said to anyone, if you try to come against us, we will take you out in a cruel and punishable way. And yet, what is incidentally happening in Rome is foretold in the Jewish religion. We see this very clearly in Deuteronomy. It says this, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man on a tree is cursed by God. The very symbol of Roman dominion is used to tell the story of the gospel. This baby who grows up and is crucified on a cross for our redemption. The Apostle Paul refers to the impact of this law to, and relationship to Jesus and his death on a cross. In Galatians 3.13, before the reading we heard this morning, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was cursed for us hanging on a cross as a substitute for our sin. He took our place on that cross. So it was the Romans who put Jesus to death, and this putting him to death was the very promise for the whole world of redemption. The Roman army was efficient, and they traveled in vast distances in short amounts of time, even today, you can visit some of the leftover roads and bridges and buildings left by the Roman civilization all over Europe, even in England. 
And the army by which Jesus' time had vanquished so many nations had left this lasting peace. They left roads, they left the sign of the cross, and they left a peace in the world. So let's now go back to Galatians chapter 4. Thank you for following with me for that lesson in church history. The expected promise of God, the common language of the Greeks, and the Roman roads and the peace made Jesus' birth the very fullness of time. For the best of time in history, we see that the gospel could actually accelerate into the world through Greek language, Greek philosophy, Roman roads, and under Roman peace. It was the fullness of time. In addition, the Apostle Paul gives us a new understanding of time with this this fullness of time. We know that there is an earthly sense of time. Now, I grew up a latchkey kid. My mom would go to work and I would walk home from school. Back in those days, it used to take me about 25 minutes to walk home from school, uphill in the snow both ways. And I would come home and I would have the same routine. I would open a a can of Campbell's soup, saltine crackers, and Coca-Cola, because Coca-Cola is the real thing. And then I would watch TV. Some days when I was sick, my mom was at work, I would watch soap operas. And one of my favorite soap operas was The Days of Our Lives. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. In this sense, what Paul is telling us about this fullness of time is there is a reality of earthly time. It happens every day minute by minute, you live in it. But there's this other time, this cosmic sense of time, that the fullness of time is mysterious, perhaps even better considered hidden. Why God acts when he acts is something we will never fully understand in this life. Why God has chosen to act the way that he acts, we will never fully understand in this lifetime, fully. And why God doesn't act in this life the way that we want or desire is equally as incoherent to us. But what is so clear from the scriptures is that Genesis 3.15 hints at God's coming action for all of eternity through the son of a woman born in Bethlehem. It would seem that besides the the flow and the warp and woof of human history, God was waiting for a unique woman named Mary to be born. The virgin mother of God who would obediently give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. A divine understanding of history is narrowed down to a particular family and to a particular girl. So Mary, the highly favored one, says the words which echo Christ's words himself. Let it be to me as you have said. And in this act of the birth, in the fullness of time, God would be both with us, Emmanuel, and God for us at the same time. A God who became one of his own creatures taking on their full nature 
In terms of this great writer, this great theologian, his name's Athanasius. We named one of our children after him. I try to read every year his little writing called On the Incarnation. This is what Athanasius says. He's remarking about the incarnation. The creator who created his own mother so he could be dependent on her for his very life. All of human history had waited for this event, this particular person, this particular family. And her life and his life is at the core of human history and human hope. It is this union of humanity and divinity in the person of Jesus Christ the babe in a manger that we sing about, which reorients our expectation of time altogether. Time before Christ takes on a new meaning. It was waiting for him. And time after Christ gains a new dimension. We are waiting for redemption to be fully realized, just like we heard in Isaiah 61. Time begins, in a sense, with Christ. Or as one theologian writer says it this way, perhaps time begins again would be a better reality than Christ. Time is cursed by sin, like all of creation. And it's even called in Greek by the very name of a Greek god, Phronos. This Greek God who is demanding and oppressive. But in the fullness of time, God recreates it. He renews it. And the only one who has created it could recreate it. But only when the time is right. The fullness of time is the means to bring about the healing of time and our lives as well. Therefore, chronos is changed to kairos, God's time, God's perfect timing, plenteous, freeing. It's not like the time of today. It never fails. I get here usually about 8 a.m. every day, and I leave in what seems like five minutes later, and it's been eight hours. To quote the great theologian Steve Miller, time keeps on slipping, slipping into the future. Half of you in the room have no idea who Steve Miller is. You can Google him later. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, and I'm running out of it, and there's never enough time, the oppression of time, and yet God's renewal of all things is to give us plenty of time with him for eternity. So our celebration of Christ's birth is earthly in its singing about shepherds and babies and oxen and mangers. It's also cosmic. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul Our souls felt its worth. 
The thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morning. Some thoughts for us today, and then I'll conclude. First, our lives are incorporated into the great story and plan of God. Who you are, where you are in life, what you're doing, what you don't have, what you have, what you know, what you don't know, whether you have much or little, whether you are of significance or insignificance, it's incorporated into the plan of God. Nothing is wasted in what God is doing in the world, including you, little old you and me, whether you are holding a baby or a school teacher or a person of great influence, God's plans and purposes are perfect and his plans and purposes for you are also perfect. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Our actions contribute to the purposes of God. He consistently, undefiably uses people, simple people, great people, who just flat out trust him, who just flat out believe this baby was born in a manger 2,000 years ago and is the savior of the world. What is consistent and true of God is he uses faith, people who trust him and believe him against insurmountable circumstances or insurmountable events of life. They just simply flat out trust him. He uses them greatly in human history. The Christmas season is full of 12 days to consider the power of the incarnation of Christ. May that be what we do this Christmas season. Amen.